This is Eight or No Better. This is Sajid Khan. We are without Avi Singh this week, and we are joined by Alameda County Deputy Public Defender Rachel Marshall. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. Rachel is a public defender in Alameda County, has been an outspoken voice on criminal justice issues both in the Bay Area and nationally, and we're really honored to have her in this episode. Rachel and I are going to be having a conversation about being public public defenders, uh, being public defenders that uh, have our voices heard not only in our courtrooms for our respective clients, but also in other forms in our communities. And then we're going to talk a bit about the uh, recall of Judge Aaron Persky here in Santa Clara County, uh, Rachel's thoughts about it, uh, her concerns about it, reactions to it, and then we'll finish up the conversation. So Rachel, welcome. Thank you. So Rachel, you and I actually have known each other via social media for a couple of years, but haven't actually met until today. I know. It's exciting to finally meet you. Yeah, it's exciting too. You know, you and I, I think first interacted when Brock Turner uh, was originally sentenced back in 2016, and then the kind of firestorm ignited relative to Judge Persky, and then you were one of the voices that came out to offer a public defender perspective on on the sentencing, on the vitriol that Judge Persky was receiving. I was one of those voices as well, and I think that's how we initially connected. Does that sound right to you? That's right. I think you reached out to me after my first piece for Vox, which was about the sentencing and about the ways in which privilege functions in our criminal justice system and how I wish that more clients faced compassion from judges. And we've been in touch since then. I've read a lot of the things you've written. I've been a huge fan, so it's exciting to be on your podcast. Yeah, no, it's exciting to have you here. We collaborated online, essentially, via email yeah. and, and Facebook and I think maybe even Twitter or Instagram. Instagram, and, I think. And, uh, <laughs> and we um, put our heads together, mm-hmm. um, myself, yourself, Avi, and we collaborated in writing a essentially a letter in support of judicial discretion, judicial independence, and judicial compassion. And we formulated that into an online change.org petition that went out into into the atmosphere and was signed by many public defenders, essentially advocating for judicial compassion and, the, and in defense of Judge Persky's decision, but more so his right to have made the decision that he did sure. in the case. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I mean, I think I don't appear before Judge Persky. I should say no one appears before Judge Persky, sadly, anymore. But I didn't know him personally. I had never appeared before him. So I wasn't in the same position as you in terms of being able to say whether that sentence would have been the same regardless of of Brock Turner's privilege and if he had been from a different background. But at the same time, it was clear to me that the recall efforts and critiquing the judge who followed probation's recommendation was going to backfire. And I think we saw that so quickly, first in terms of policy changes, And then we saw it, obviously, with the recall success and the message that the recall was sending both before it actually succeeded to judges and the impact it was having for our clients in the courtrooms. And then as well, what's been happening since the recall and what I know and fear is going to continue to be a a trend among judges just being very afraid to exercise discretion or to show mercy. Yeah, so let's back up a second, and because I think introducing you and your in sure. your background will give give us some context to this conversation. You are a public defender in Alameda County. Yes. And how long have you been doing that? I've been in Alameda County for about a little over six years, and before that, I was in San Francisco on a fellowship that I left once I was hired in Alameda County. So I did a few months in San Francisco Public Defender's Office. Before that, I clerked myself for a federal judge in um, Southern California. And that was that was my trajectory after law school. 
what kind of assignments have you had in Alameda County and what are you working on right now? Right now I'm in a felony trial assignment where I've been for about a year and a half, a little over a year and a half in Oakland. And before that I had been doing um, a variety of both preliminary hearings um, in felony cases as well as misdemeanor assignments. So I started in misdemeanors as all attorneys in our office do, was there for a while, did some preliminary hearings, went back to misdemeanors, went back to preliminary hearings, and now I've been doing felony trials. Awesome. As we alluded to earlier on in our conversation, you ha- your voice is not only heard on behalf of your clients in your courtroom, but you've also been a pretty outspoken uh, public defender voice in the uh, mainstream community. So can you talk about uh, kind of the genesis of your taking your public defender voice from the courtroom out into into the public sphere? Yeah, I think it was something that I'd wanted to do for a long time. I had I remember that I initially wrote a piece about immigration and the way it was being addressed in courtrooms or not addressed in courtrooms and was sort of too afraid to put that piece out there and because I was so worried about the way it would be received. And then when the Brock Turner case happened, I had such a strong reaction to it and I think I wrote a Facebook post about it mm-hmm. that got a lot of recognition from people that I knew and then just decided very impulsively to send it to a, a number of different media outlets. Vox picked it up. It all happened really fast. It kind of blew up. And then I was lucky enough to be able to be continuing to write for Vox fairly regularly, sometimes about things that are in the news, sometimes about issues that are just close to my heart, like bail reform, um, which I wrote about a couple of years ago, as well as sex registration laws. And those are sort of more think pieces. And then I've written about um, the Nasser case, and I've written a few times about impacts of the Brock Turner case, both in legislative decisions that have been made as a result of that case, as well as most recently last week about the recall itself. You and I were just talking before we mm-hmm. started this conversation about how comfortable or uncomfortable it's been to be a public defender whose voice is projecting outside the courtroom. I know for me, there was some discomfort about being uh, taking our client stories and or our perspectives as a public defender and, sh- and, and sharing them in the light. Mm-hmm. Because I think for so long, our profession has been pretty insular. Yes. And for appropriate reasons, because of confidentiality issues, because of essentially just bandwidth, we expend so much energy uh, speaking up on behalf of our clients in the courthouse. There's not a lot of energy left to be out writing news articles or writing editorials or being mm-hmm. outspoken outside. So I know it's been kind of a journey for, for me to take that step out into the community. Can you talk about uh, kind of the journey for you yeah. um, and how comfortable or uncomfortable it's been to be a public public defender? Yeah, I love that term. I'm going to use Avi, that. Avi told us about it, so we're going <laughs> to use it too. It's a public, public defender. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I think for me, I, I felt an obligation to get our stories of our clients out there because, and and I'm sure you feel the same way as someone Mm -hmm. who's been doing it far longer than me, but to walk into courtrooms every day and face the kinds of injustice that no one sees and that it feels like nobody really cares about outside of the courtroom walls, if anyone even does, I just felt like I couldn't sustain myself in this role without getting my clients' voices out there, without making sure that people knew what was really happening. Because I think there's some awareness of high profile cases which often, as obviously in the Turner case, misrepresent what the system really looks like. And there are some wrongful convictions cases that thankfully have gotten a lot of press, but I think people really don't know the kinds of small injustices that happen Mm -hmm. every single day. And I felt like I had a duty as a witness to get that word out. 
And then selfishly, I think I needed it for myself. It's, yeah. it's so demoralizing sometimes to come back from court and think about the things you've seen and think about the ways that DAs and judges view our clients and the way that juries view our clients and all of that. I felt like the only way I could sustain a career in this job, standing up for our clients, is to also make sure that there could be ideally some policy change that came from it, some education of the public that would happen by telling stories. Yeah. And so for me, it's it's both selfish because it's so important for me in order to be able to nourish my soul, to, to know that at least my clients' tragedies are hopefully going to result in change for everybody eventually, yeah. even if it doesn't happen overnight. Right. I mean, you, what you're saying resonates with me so deeply because that's exactly what prompts me to write, what prompted Avi and I to start this podcast is because of the misinformation that clouds mm-hmm. our our system, but also that uh, shapes the way our clients are looked at. So often our clients are robbed of their humanity. Yes. Uh, they are looked at for the crimes they're accused of, their uh, PFN or their identifying mm-hmm. number on their jail bracelet, mm-hmm. their jail uniforms. Their rap um, sheets. Their rap sheets, exactly. And you know how much time they're serving, uh, things like that. But there is there are human beings beneath and inside each of our case files and um, beneath every criminal docket that's in our courthouses. I and Avi and I in, in our writing and our podcasting are attempting to breathe life back into our clients, to, to tell their stories so that so that we can shape, like you said, policy and so we can kind of peel back this mass incarceration machine that essentially thrives on the dehumanization of our clients because it's so easy to throw people into jail cells, into prison walls when you don't recognize their humanity. But then when you know who this person is, know their story, uh, understand that they are they're layered and complicated, right. it becomes uh, that much more challenging for us as a community to, to just lock them up and throw them away. Right. In terms of policy too, so all of most of our work happens in empty courtrooms mm-hmm. and so very few people are watching uh, when it comes to when a judge denies bail for a particular client or decides to deny uh, reducing a felony to a misdemeanor for another, another client or decides to give a client prison instead of probation or decides to give a client life in prison instead of a more determinate term mm-hmm. or when a DA, a DA makes a excessive plea bargain offer. We have an opportunity to shine a light on some of these quiet injustices or these quiet moments that are essentially kind of create the the gears of our system. Right. I think it's 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 hard though. It's a balance because I'm sure you do the same. I have to think every piece that I write, every word that I write, is there a way this is going to hurt one of my clients? Mm-hmm. Is there a way that this is going to backfire? Right. Is some district attorney going to see this and hold it against my future clients? simply because they can't stand the things that I'm saying right. or the way that I'm publicizing something that's happened. And there have been lots of stories I really wanted to tell that I couldn't tell because I just didn't think it would do justice to that current client or to a future client. Yeah. And that's a balance. And I, I'm really lucky that my public defender boss, public, Brendan Woods, has been you know, really on the front lines of getting public defender voices out there yeah. and has been really supportive of my work. So. Um, I'm grateful for that, but at the same time, it's it is a struggle in terms of making sure that we protect our our current clients. And I, but I think that's how we get silenced. I think sometimes yeah. we're so concerned about that that we stop and think. And Brendan said this to me recently once, where I was about to write something, and I said, "Well, should I say this?" And he said, "Well, is it true?" Mm-hmm. And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "Does it need to change?" And I said, "Yeah." Right. And he said, 
is it going to hurt your clients? And I said, I don't think so. Yeah. And he said, well, then do it, uh, write it, even if it's going to potentially anger a lot of people in the system. Right. One of the things that's been really exciting and powerful about this podcast is that Avi and I, I, I hope, maintain a pretty authentic voice on the podcast. And there's nothing that we say on the podcast that we wouldn't be willing to say right. to a DA in a plea bargain discussion or to a judge in in chambers or on the record or in our various kind of community forums. And so uh, the public defender perspective has been missing, I think, from uh, the conversation so often, especially when it comes to issues of criminal justice. I'm grateful that you and I, Avi, Brendan Woods and others are part of this new kind of era of public defender uh, where we are inserting our perspectives and then in turn our, our clients' perspectives and their stories into the mainstream narrative. Um, like who would have thought, for example, that mass incarceration mm -hmm. would be a uh, topic for presidential candidates to be discussing uh, in, in debates, and right. it was in 2016, and I think that was not by accident. It was a result of public defender or uh, voices and criminal justice advocates um, becoming more mainstream, and it's, uh, it's really necessary, so I'm really grateful that you're doing it. Thanks. I think that it, it also potentially has an impact on a smaller scale, too. Um, in a positive way, I've had judges comment to me that they saw me on CNN or that um, they liked one judge called it my reporting for Vox, which I found <laughs> funny because it's far from objective. Right. But I, I do think it's it's good for the whole system to know that everyone, there is a, a flashlight being shined mm -hmm. into the criminal justice courtrooms. And I think that that's really important for judges and DAs to be aware of that those stories are getting out there yeah. and that they have to think about the decisions that they're making. And we have to be careful about that as, as the recall movement showed. Right. But at the same time, I think it's important to know that our clients' voices are being heard and for everyone to know that. Well, it's interesting that you bring up the recall, so we'll go back to that. So what prompted me to, I think you and I had a similar genesis to why we inserted ourselves in, into that discussion. Right. I actually had not appeared in front of Judge Persky either. Oh. Um, he is, was a sitting judge in our Palo Alto courthouse. My colleagues had appeared in front of him. I never even met the man, hmm. but then was following my Facebook feed uh, when Brock Turner was sentenced and then when the letter of... I think Emily Doe was right. released out into the public. My Facebook feed of people that I thought were relatively progressive and kind of criminal justice um, reform oriented were uh, either calling for the removal of the judge or were asking for or demanding that Brock Turner be sentenced to prison and or some combination thereof. Uh, I thought it was so littered with misinformation or mm -hmm. misleading information um, as, it, as it relates to what the criminal justice system actually looks like and what a sentence really involves. So for example, everybody was saying, oh, Brock Turner just got six months in jail. No one was taking a moment to mention that he was a convicted felon, that he would have to register for the rest of his life as a sex offender, that he was on felony probation, that he was subject to California's three strikes laws, amongst many other consequences. And so my initial prompt was, I want to put my voice out there just to correct some misinformation, mm -hmm. because we do have mm -hmm a unique expertise as public defenders sure. that practice in our courthouses to be able to add some nuance to conversations that are so often uh, kind of not very nuanced when it comes to what our system does and what it looks like. Does that? Does yeah, that... no, I made that face because the nuance is the piece that, that bothers me so much when I read coverage mm -hmm. of criminal cases and particularly the Turner cases because all of those conversations lack nuance. Right. And that's unfortunately what happens when you have people without criminal justice backgrounds leading a movement based on something that they see in isolation without 
the context without reference points to really say, you know, how normal is this? And, you know, I hesitate to say that because it makes it sound like I'm saying that the Turner sentence was normal Mm -hmm. or what usually happens. And I think we both know that's far from the case. Most of our clients who are convicted of serious sexual crimes don't get probation. And not to minimize the, the other consequences, which are very severe, sex registration most notably, I think. But it is so atypical and the idea that this is what the general public now thinks happens right is what's so disconcerting and what's so frustrating and the ways in which the recall leaders tried to create a narrative around what happened that simply doesn't fit what actually happens in most cases and simply took completely failed to take into account the impact of the recall itself and the impact of criticizing judges in that way when they were going along with, you know, in that case, probation's recommendations. Right. So when you initially spoke out, mm-hmm. spoke up and spoke out on what was uh, the kind of the internet firestorm sure. that Persky was facing, what were you concerned about? Like, what were you, what were you foreseeing that could be problematic um, as a result of, of, of that firestorm? At the very beginning, I think my view was very much, this is not what usually happens. Mm-hmm. And we have a system that really punishes people for lack of privilege. Um, and I think a lot of those are really institutional measures. And this is something that has been completely absent, at least in what I've seen from the discussion. But everyone you know, wants to blame Judge Persky for the sentence. And then some of us say, well, wait a minute, probation. Um, made the recommendation. But I think what we really need to do is say, well, what criteria are probation using? Mm -hmm. And what probation looks at are all proxies for privilege. Mm. They look at whether someone has a record, um, which we all know people of color, low-income folks are going to be disproportionately targeted by police and more likely to have a record. They look at whether someone has financial stability. They look at whether someone has education, job prospects. Those are all proxies for privilege. Right, right. So I think the system—I think we all know—the system is set up in its in its very nature to reward people who are privileged and make them more likely to get benefits and to be viewed more compassionately. Exactly, yeah. and I think the the problem with how that got interpreted is that people say, "Well, we need to be harsher," right. and that's not the answer. Right. The answer is that we need to figure out how do we create ideas of mitigation around people that don't grow up like Brock Turner, people who who came up living on the streets without a lot of prospects. How do we see that all of the opportunities they could have um, and reward them in different ways? So I think we really have to look a lot deeper. And it just, Judge Persky was such a scapegoat for the problems we have in our system. And it's a separate conversation whether he was even someone who would not have rewarded a non-privileged person. But even if you assume for the sake of argument that the sentence resulted um, from privilege, I still think you have to look deeper and think, how do we change the structures in our system? Because you and I know when a client walks into court and they're wearing a suit, that client is not getting treated the same way. Right. I just saw it last week in court, not one of my clients, but everyone in the courtroom just reacts differently yeah. to a client wearing a suit or a client who clearly comes in with financial resources. Or and, two parents next to them. Or exactly, like yeah. exactly. Or, or 30 people in the audience, all mm-hmm. of that. And so we need to think more creatively about how do we create a system that doesn't result in disproportionate sentencing for people without privilege. And it can't. the answer can't be we have to punish people more harshly. I mean, what, what I took from it was that the judge, you know, whether consciously or subconsciously, for a variety of reasons, including privilege, was able to look at Brock Turner for more than just the crime that he was convicted of. Exactly. Like he was able to see the young man, his, mm-hmm. his, his past, his present, mm-hmm. his future, like you said, all his uh, his education, his prospects, all of that, 
and then was able to have some empathy as to what kind of impact jail or prison would have on him and then made a decision to give him probation, essentially give him an opportunity to avoid a prison term. What we, what I think you're alluding to and what I would want is the same type of consideration being afforded to our day-to-day, quote-unquote, public defender clients who are typically brown and black, mm-hmm. who are typically not coming from the type of privilege that Brock Turner was coming from, and whose potential might manifest differently or might look differently or their prospects might look different because of their particularized circumstance. So, you know, the young person who um, may not be at Stanford but has a job mm-hmm. at McDonald's mm-hmm. and that relative to their to their uh, circumstances is Absolutely. actually a really strong indicator of their ability to redeem themselves and rehabilitate or their drive. You know, like you said, looking at someone's criminal history and not just writing that person off because they have an arrest record or criminal history, being willing to look a little deeper and understanding that that criminal history may be coming from certain trauma or there may be certain roots to that uh, that can be where they live exactly where they live and essentially having a judge look at that our clients uh, holistically in the same way that persky was able to look at turner the concern that i had was the initial kind of knee-jerk reaction would be well brock turner benefited from privilege black and brown people don't get don't get those same benefits Turner should have gotten the same sentence that other black and brown men get, uh, disproportionate or excessive sentences. And so we essentially have this this kind of toggling up uh, right. mentality right. as opposed to assessing, hey, should, shouldn't that black or brown similarly situated client have received the same consideration in sentencing that Turner received instead of asking, uh, instead of saying that Brock Turner should get prison, maybe the black or brown offender shouldn't have got prison, should have gotten probation too. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough. I think it's, it's a fine line there for me because I was, I mean, I was originally brought to this case by Emily Doe's letter, like so mm-hmm. many other people, and I right. was really moved by it. And I, it makes me really devastated that there's this split, that this idea that you can't be a feminist and oppose the recall, or you can't be a feminist and say that we need compassionate sentencing. Mm-hmm. And that, that seems to have been where... I think the Brock Turner case has led us, and and along with some other cases, and it's just simply not true. I think one can have tremendous compassion for Emily Doe, and maybe even think that a harsher sentence would have been more appropriate in this case, and still believe, as I do, that the recall is completely misguided, and I keep saying is, it's over. (laughs) The recall was misguided, and is going to create in um, a lot, a lot of, of unfair penalties for people. Yeah, I think yeah, I think reasonable minds can agree or disagree on the sentence. I personally, you know, one of the concerns that I had was this idea of six months not being enough, and uh, for me that I felt like it rooted in our kind of mass incarceration psyche that we've been sure. come to accept of jail time or prison time equaling justice, and that there, we have a societal kind of thirst for mm-hmm. more prison time equaling justice for the victim or justice for the community and I, I felt like it was a step backward for us as a community as we as we move to dismantle mass incarceration but then here we were you know in a, in a case where a judge uh, didn't uh, impose a hefty prison sentence saying no we want more we right. want more right. and it really kind of emphasized again well we really haven't gotten that far in Mm -hmm. terms of our uh, movement against using incarceration as our only means and methods of justice and so that was what was disappointing for me 
and and it, the the arguments that I was hearing as it related to why Turner received more should receive more time weren't really based in any real purpose of punishment. Right. You know, there was no indication that he needed to be incapacitated because he was some active threat right. of reoffending, or that more time in prison was going to serve him well in terms of rehabilitation. In right. fact. We know very well how much trauma that our clients uh, go through when they are jailed or pr- imprisoned, and that it actually may uh, prevent them from re- rehabilitating and it may actually make them worse off when they come out, when they went in. Um, so I, beyond just retribution, I wasn't hearing significant arguments as to why prison was more necessary for the protection of the public, for justice for the victim, or for Brock Turner. And so it just, again, devolved back to more time equals right. justice, and it was—it's a kind of mentality that we've been trying to unearth ourselves from for a long time, and it, we were right back into that mental space again with with the kind of the rhetoric that the social media firestorm was Absolutely. was utilizing. And I, I also think that something that gets glossed over is I was recently rereading Emily Doe's letter, and it actually says explicitly that she doesn't want him to rot in right. prison. Right. And so I think there's this idea that we are somehow uh, giving something to the victim by harsher penalties and sometimes a lot of the times it is true that that's what they want and that's exactly why we don't want a criminal justice system that's dictated by the people most influenced who can't be objective but also in this case I think it was clear she was looking for some sort of restorative justice right and obviously you know that didn't happen yeah one of the points that was concerning that the recall proponents were utilizing was this idea that she was put through a trial and that because she was put through a trial that Brock Turner should suffer more severe consequences because he put her through the trial. And obviously you and I know, or actually most people I hope that have you know, <laughs> attended like a civics class in, you know, a government class in high school, know that it wasn't Brock Turner that put that woman through the trial. It wasn't Persky that put that person through the trial. It was our, the way our system is designed. And right. it's, a, it's a system of confrontation where our clients have the right to confront and cross-examine their accusers, that when someone does make an accusation of any sort of crime or a particularly serious crime, that they may face the prospect of having to come into court and to testify about their observations, their memories, and to answer questions from a defense attorney about their memory or lack thereof. It was a problematic rhetoric that the recall folks were using was Uh, this idea that because Brock Turner exercised his constitutional rights to go to trial, that he therefore, and because he was convicted, that he therefore should suffer more severe consequences. Did you have any reactions to that? Yeah, well, what scares me is that it it rings true to, I think, what happens in a lot of criminal courts every day with what we call the trial tax, and that people actually, there's so many incentives not to go to trial, not to exercise your constitutional right, because for the most part, and again, this case is so atypical in that way, For the most part, people do get punished more harshly after trial if they lose. Even when the evidence comes in exactly as expected, oftentimes even when it comes in a lot better for the defense, when there's actual mitigation or the witnesses aren't as strong as they may look in a written police report. And unfortunately, so often people do get punished for going to trial. And I think that this is a perfect demonstration of how how that's viewed in the system, even among judges, even among prosecutors who should know 
everything you just said in terms of the basic fundamental rights to go to trial. Right. And why a lot of people who are facing tremendous amount of time, they may be innocent, they may not be, all the facts may not be exactly true, they may not have an offer that's reasonable or an offer at all. Yeah. But also, you know, before going to prison, the government should prove its case. Yeah. That's what was so dangerous about this recall effort to me was the message that it was sending to our community members. Again, this idea first that jail equals justice and kind of reinforcing our kind of mass incarceration mentalities for me. Mm -hmm. The second point being this idea that when our clients go to trial that they are abdicating responsibility or they are, you know, making the victims go through some traumatic, difficult process, not to diminish how traumatic or difficult that process is, but it's not our clients that are doing so. Again, reinforcing or sending that message, ultimately, how that's going to trickle down or continue to trickle down is that it will impact how our clients are viewed. We're going to talk about sentencing in a moment, but I'm just thinking to myself now, it'll also impact to a degree how uh, juries uh, look at our clients, you know, as they sit as they sit in the courtroom you know, why is he making us all go through this, putting the onus on that mm-hmm. person, as opposed to recognizing that there are, that this is a constitutional right, that there are many reasons why someone goes to trial. Uh, most often it's because our clients are not getting uh, fair or reasonable plea bargain options that are being right. afforded to them. And so they, they have no choice but to go to trial. Sometimes no offer at all. Right. And, and so this idea that jurors are going to come into a courtroom, sit in a jury box, and look at our clients as being being responsible for this whole operation going on. That they're the ones that are making everyone go through this. The jurors, the judge, the community resources, the victims. And then implicitly or explicitly holding that against them when they have to make a decision about guilt or non-guilt. Right. And I think what's so scary, again, is that this is something that's already existed. And this, this case and this recall effort is going to exacerbate what we already see every day. Mm-hmm. To that point, the other, the other thing that the recall folks were utilizing was the fact that Brock Turner was appealing his conviction. I don't know if you saw yeah. some strands of that. Yeah. I mean, you and I know full well that we have a ethical, Absolutely. legal obligation to file a notice of appeal on behalf of any trial client that's been right. convicted of any crime right. if, if, they, if they want to pursue an appeal. And so the fact that Brock Turner was appealing his uh, conviction, we know that that's Mm -hmm. not a reflection on his remorse, uh, whether it exists or lack thereof, or a reflection on uh, his rehabilitative prospects. It's just part of our system. But the way the recall proponents were utilizing it was essentially sending the message, oh, he hasn't taken responsibility. Look, he's appealing his decision. He wants to make her go through it again. Exactly. it just is very dangerous messaging, and it will impact the way our clients are viewed in, the, in, a, in both in our courthouses and then outside our courthouses as well. And that's what's been, in some ways, the scariest part of the recall to me is the way that false messaging and false narratives can so easily take off right. and people genuinely believe them. So, for example, when I wrote you know, a lot of the pieces, I'm sure you've had the same thing, I get a lot of hate mail. Right. <laughs> that's one thing we didn't mention about being a public, public yeah, defender is right. you have to have a thick skin, which yeah. I'm not always the best at. Oh, um, yeah, it's easy to get lost in those comments. Oh my God, and, Twitter is the worst. Yeah. Um, there's so many, and yeah, there's a lot of negativity out there. And some of the hate mail that I've gotten or comments that I've seen has have said things like, you know, this isn't one case, this is a pattern. Because obviously in my last piece, I had criticized, you know, one case being... Um, a catalyst for a judge being removed mm-hmm. and how that's that's such a dangerous precedent. And people kept saying, that's a pattern. 
But when you look, the recall proponents had identified five cases out of what must be thousands right. that Judge Persky had seen or handled. And anyone like you or I or a lot of our listeners who has experience in criminal justice would know that these are really distinguishable, that they're completely apples and oranges. So taking a plea bargain case and saying, well, the judge didn't blow up that plea bargain and that was a higher sentence than Brock Turner got for the same crime. So therefore, you know, that guy was Latino, this guy is white. So therefore that shows bias. When in fact, we all know that judges are almost never involved in plea bargains. And that was something the prosecutor had worked out. Or taking examples where he, Judge Persky, made a decision that the district attorney didn't oppose. Or, or just taking things out of context yeah. without understanding the nuance, as you said before, of the system. And yeah. that scares me that people can really believe that. Oh, right. And that goes back to where we have a, a significant responsibility to, to add our voices. Whether people are willing to hear it or not, as we've demonstrated in this recall kind of discussion, I don't know that many people were, were willing to hear our voices, but mm-hmm. at least we were out there and and putting it out there if people want if the informed voter or the informed kind of electorate wanted to get out and hear it and eventually maybe maybe you know these voices will accumulate enough where it starts to be heard more uh, broadly and more deeply but because there's so much misinformation and I think we have a responsibility to correct a lot of it on behalf of our clients and on behalf of the integrity of our system for more for me it's more so on behalf of our clients because I I like you said I'm it's a client-centered mentality it's like you know for me, when the vitriol or the firestorm is engaged on Brock Turner and Judge Persky, Brock Turner was represented by a private attorney. He wasn't a public defender client. Right. But I'm concerned about how is this going to impact my client. My client, when I show up in the same courthouse or you know in the near uh, next door courtroom, how is that case going to impact my client? And that's why I feel this responsibility to speak up and speak out. Yes, and if there's one thing I could say to the people who have criticized those of us who have been critical of the recall effort, it is that a lot of people have said to me, well, judges aren't going to take the message. They need to be harsher. They're just going to say, don't favor the privileged. Mm -hmm. And it just, I mean, it just makes us laugh for those of us who are actually do this work. Because as we know, judges already have so many inherent incentives to punish harshly. Mm. We have a wrongful conviction epidemic in our country. And can you name a single judge that's ever been subject to vitriol because of imposing a life sentence on someone who's innocent or imposing the death penalty on someone who's innocent. Not a one. Yeah. I mean, there's just no reaction when a judge is seen as too harsh. And so the idea that judges are going to take this nuanced view of, well, you know, Brock Turner was privileged and this guy isn't as privileged, so it's, it's safe for me to exercise leniency. You know, we all know that there will be another Brock Turner. There will be right. another case that enrages the public, may or may not be someone privileged, and no judge wants to be the next Aaron Persky. Right. And so we all know in the system that judges are going to be far more hesitant to exercise compassion, far more um, willing to impose harshness just because they're worried other jobs are on the line. Yeah. So let's talk about that because I think that dovetails into, I think, what our primary concern about this recall was, was the impact on our bench in terms of how they, how they utilize or not utilize their discretion for the benefit or non-benefit of our clients. And my major concern, I think your concern too, was uh, when we criticize a judge uh, like Judge Persky for handing down what is perceived to be a lenient sentence to someone like Brock Turner, uh, when we recall that judge, what message are we sending to other judges on the bench? Ultimately, I think that the message uh, that was sent and that is being sent is that we, as a community, would rather our judges err on the side Mm -hmm. of being more harsh and punitive rather than being 
uh, compassionate and holistic in their sentencing. And so how that trickles down is that ultimately when our public defender, quote unquote public defender clients are in our courthouses, we are are advocating uh, for particular plea bargains on their behalf with a judge or a DA or post-trial, we're asking for a judge to give our clients probation or maybe a lesser prison term that those judges in those seats in those moments of truth and those very significant moments in the in the lifelines of our clients are going to either consciously or subconsciously think of what happened to judge persky and think to themselves you know what if i give what is perceived to be a lenient sentence to this particular offender maybe you know someone on facebook is going to write a post maybe someone in the news is going to catch wind of this case and I might be the next Persky, so I'm going to be, I'm either going to err on the side of being uh, more punitive, or I'm not going to, I'm not going to give that client that lesser sentence, even though I think that's what they deserve, or that's what the system kind of calls for. We saw that even before the recall took place, but just the fact that it was happening and the effort was happening. um, I told this story in my last piece, but I know someone who did a trial with a very sympathetic client, young client, no record. And he was actually a person of color. So I actually think it speaks to the idea that judges aren't just worried about rewarding the privileged, but a very sympathetic case and client. And fortunately, the jury acquitted, they got it right. And the judge said to that lawyer afterwards, I'm so glad that you won, because otherwise I was going to have a Brock Turner problem. Mm -hmm. You heard what happened to that other judge. Right. And the message was clear. The judge was worried that he was wanted to give that client probation if the if he was convicted that he didn't deserve prison but he was too afraid right and he didn't want to risk that this case was the next Brock Turner yeah judges are human beings they don't want to be uh, to have their faces plastered on the news they don't want their faces plastered like judge Persky's face were you know on on campaign billboards and signs they don't want to be perceived as being biased they don't want that cloud uh, hovering over them. Like I said, in these very critical moments in our clients' lives, they are going to engage in some self-preservation. And in the way this recall effort has unfolded is that self-preservation for these judges is going to be to impose more punitive or harsh sentences on, on clients of ours, even though the particular circumstances may not call for it. And so how and even though they don't want to. Right. I mean, I think a lot of these judges are, are want to do the right thing. Right. And it's it's wrong of us as a society to put them in a position where they have to consider their job or public reaction yeah. or doing the right thing under the law and under the evidence. Yeah. And obviously I still believe that they should do the right thing regardless of those pressures other way. But it's wrong of us to be telling judges, and that's what the recall did, to tell judges, you answer to us. I think that's a real problem. You answer to us, and you answer to us, uh, specifically, you answer to us if you give a sentence that we think is too light. It's it's not the other way around. No, in fact, you can look at the Nasser case, right? Right. Where the judge was so over the top in her statements and was so aggressive in terms of the things she said, sort of implying that she wanted him to be raped in prison. Right. And that was obviously a terrible case. And and I don't think anyone is critiquing the sentence itself, but the harshness that she showed towards him, that got a great public reaction. Mm -hmm. People loved her. Right. And so the message to judges over and over in recent times has been, if you are harsh, 
you know, we'll be on your side. Yep. And if you are remotely perceived as lenient, you're in trouble. We're seeing it happen in our courthouse. Um, I saw it happen on a case of mine. I mean, all we can do is kind of anecdotally collect these stories because they're happening, like, because our work so often happens in in chambers discussions mm-hmm. sure. and things like that. But we're seeing it in, in their willingness to undercut DA's offers, to give probation terms, to strike strikes, to use their discretion for the perceived benefit of our clients. And we can see that manifesting in, in a whole variety of different ways in our system. It could happen in, in bail settings sure. where, where a judge is thinking to themselves, you know what, if I reduce bail or allow this person out, uh, you know, that's charged with some sort of sexual assault offense or domestic violence offense, even though I believe that they merit a reduced bail or being let out on some sort of electronic monitoring or whatever it might be, is Michelle Dauber or, or her crew or um, is it Michelle Dauber? Yeah. Michelle Dauber or many, you know, is someone going to get wind of this case and criticize me for allowing this offender out into the community? Oh, it could so it can happen at bail settings. It can happen at a preliminary hearing where a judge is listening to evidence and is saying to themselves, you know what, I'm not really convinced that the prosecution has established enough evidence for this case to be held over for trial. But I don't want to be seen as dismissing this case. Exactly. I don't want to be the judge that's going to dismiss it. I'll let that. I'll let a jury decide it. Even though it's a legal question. Right. right. And then utilizing their discretion against our clients sure. instead of letting them, you know, instead of actually following uh, what's right under those particular circumstances. Plea bargaining, obviously, when we do, I don't know how it is in Alameda County, but mm-hmm. so many conversations were sent to a trial department. We go back in chambers with the judge and the DA. We hash out what the evidence is. We talk about what the potential defenses are. Mm-hmm. And then the judge says, well, I think the case is worth four years. DA says the case is worth you know, nine years, and then, you know, and then we take that information back to our clients. You know, a judge in that moment saying, you know what, I'm not subconsciously or consciously deciding I'm not going to give, I'm not going to undercut the DA. I'm not right. going to go below what the DA is willing to, to offer on a particular case and not willing to put their neck out. And then obviously at sentencing, ultimately where our clients either have been convicted via plea bargain or convicted uh, either by, um, yeah, by, by plea or by jury conviction. Even um, though you skipped uh, one that I would add yeah. too, which is rulings during trial. Oh, there you go. Um, in yeah. terms of what evidence is going to come mm-hmm. in, um, because one of the things that the Persky recalled supporters had pointed to were some of the decisions that were made in right. trial. Right. And so in other cases that Judge Persky had. So, I mean, I think nothing is really safe. Yeah. Because I think what is so troubling is that judges know that today it was a sentencing of mm-hmm. a privileged person, but nobody knows what tomorrow is going to be. Right. It could be a decision at trial it could be something a bail decision as you said right. i mean there could be another brock turner coming there is going to be another brock yeah. turner coming and what's so troubling to me about it is that it feels like the public wants two completely competing things right because i think at least in progressive circles like you said mass incarceration is something we're talking about bail reform is so popular right. in the general public but i think i don't know if it's a difference of taking specific cases versus thinking about a system overall where people can say, sure, I uh, support ending mass incarceration. Sure, I support bail reform, but not for Brock Turner. Right. That's not, that, not for this case. That's right? what I've been seeing. It's like, right. oh, yeah, yeah, I love what you're saying. You know, you're you're you know, you're a great advocate and but not for this case, you know, but I'm, I'm thinking to myself, our system is made up of individual cases. Right. And, and, then, and Brock Turner is not the typical case. Right. That, that's the problem is that Brock Turner is not the 
not the he didn't need bail reform, right? He was out. Right. And that's the problem is that pe- there's such a disconnect between what the public says it wants, or when I say the public, I I really mean the progressive public, I yeah. should say. Although I think it's becoming more mainstream, even mm-hmm. in conservative circles, particularly right. bail reform, and then wanting really tougher penalties because you know it's not just the recall; it's after Brock Turner, California law changed as a result of this case, where we now have mandatory minimums on rape cases, yeah. and we have. Um, the definition of rape changed because people often say that Brock Turner was convicted of rape. Technically, that wasn't true. It's, yeah. you know, that doesn't make diminish how serious that crime was when I say that. But technically, that wasn't true. That definition changed. Um, and these are things that statute of limitations changed on sex cases. There used yeah. to be a statute of limitations. There no longer is. And these are things that directly came that lead toward mass incarceration, even as we have a public saying, no, that's not really what we want. Right. Right. So... Spoiler alert, the, you know, the recall was successful, unfortunately. Oh, are we supposed to pretend it? Uh, no, I guess I, I said a few times. No, 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 we were supposed to pretend <laughs> we just, We've been talking about it in, the, in like the, uh, as if it hadn't happened yet. I guess that's right. We should tell everybody who's listening. Yeah, so, you know, Judge Persky was recalled on June 5th, I think by a pretty significant margin. 59%. Yeah, 59% margin. I think maybe we can just kind of dovetail in that direction. So what's next? Like, now that the recall was successful from your perspective as a public defender you know, practicing in, our, in Alameda County in, our, in your courthouse. What do you think is the next step? Like how do, we, how do we respond to the recall? How do we counter its potential consequences? Yeah. Um, any thoughts? It's such a tough question because I really feel that judges are on our side on this. Mm-hmm. I feel, you know, obviously they want to protect their jobs, but I also feel like they want to protect their integrity yeah. and their ability to do the right thing. And and from my perspective, I think we really need to rethink the public's role in the judiciary altogether. Mm-hmm. I want to say as a caveat, obviously, while we have the current system of judicial elections, we want good people to run, um, people who are not you know, going to funnel through mass incarceration. But I do think it's worth rethinking whether that's a, a system that really benefits our clients overall, and whether we should rethink whether we can have recalls, whether we can have judicial elections, because you know, it really risks having a judiciary that responds to the public and is fearful about any one decision blowing up. Yeah. And I think that that's something that should be thought about. But that's that's obviously a more bigger picture issue. I think I think for us, it's tough, right? Because on the one hand, and I'd be curious to hear how you're handling it, but I feel like I have to tell my clients, particularly in sex cases, hey, you know, we're in a post-Brock Turner world, mm-hmm. we're in a post-recall world. It's unlikely that you're going to get probation after trial, even though you right. might have three years ago right. um, before this case was was so well known. And so, at the same time, I don't want to re- I don't want to give up. I don't want to say, okay, we're just going to accept that this is the new normal. Right. So I think we I don't know exactly how we do that. I don't know if it becomes sort of the the problem whether we shine a light on the problem and sort of start outing judges who are too harsh. I mean, I, maybe that's the solution. Is mm-hmm. you know, I keep saying there's no one getting publicity for being too harsh well maybe that's what we can change right, right. as boy, as public public defenders can we somehow shine a light probably not in our own counties yeah. um, or maybe we can yeah. maybe we can do it in each other's counties right, right? <laughs> but just start to out those decisions mm-hmm. um you know they're happening nationally obviously we're in the bay area but nationally i think there's even more injustices than 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 we yeah. could possibly know about and the question is how does the public respond to those right what do you think about the idea of actually talking about it in our courthouses, like on in a respective case, like actually mentioning to a judge on their record, I understand, Your Honor, may be concerned about being perceived as too 
lenient in the you know in the era of Judge Persky having been recalled. You know, actually it gave me like a shiver down my spine because I would be so afraid to say that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but how do you think your judges would take that? I don't know. As I develop in my career, I've been finding myself becoming a bit more bold and mm-hmm. kind of courageous and being able to say what I'm thinking. I'm not sure if that's always a good thing, but I, just trying to f- find that courage that I, off, you know, sometimes as a public defender, I would often find myself thinking to say something, but then biting my lip because I didn't want to be mm-hmm. disrespectful. I didn't want to be uh, too too brazen. Sure. But I feel like sometimes it may be of benefit for us to kind of talk about the elephant in the room and to call out these these forces that are at play that are affecting our particular clients, uh, whether it be the system of mass incarceration and like I talked about earlier, you know, jail equaling justice. Again, taking a moment to peel the layers back of our clients and mm-hmm. telling their stories and shining a light, a different light on their on their backgrounds, their their prospects, their their humanity. But then in this type of scenario, actually just outwardly saying, judge, you know, this idea that you know this may be a factor in the court's decision making and, and encouraging them uh, to to set that aside, just like we would with a jury. Sure. Like when we're doing yes. vo- doing voir dire with jurors, we we kind of we try to empathize with some of the thoughts that might be running through their mind. You know, like oh, oh if you don't hear from my client, will you be more likely to uh, believe he has something to hide or believe that he's more, more likely guilty because he didn't testify? Right. Um, and hearing their response, so we call out kind of the elephant in the room. I think that's that's a really good analogy because we do do that all the time and. Maybe it is great to shine a mirror to a judge's face and remind them mm-hmm. of their role and remind them that we see it. We and and in some ways it's sort of if you do it in the right way, I think it can show empathy. Like, yeah. Look, we recognize that you're in right. this impossible position because of this ridiculous recall. Yeah. And we want to remember remind you of your role, remind you to do the right thing in spite yeah. of these pressures. And maybe it maybe it would work. Maybe it would get judges to say, No, I'm not like that. I'm yeah. not going to change I'm not going to be unfair because of this recall. Yeah, it was just a thought, you know, because I, I do think I do think it, it could be received that way if we if we couch it in the with the right kind of terminology and, and the, with right the right grace. Judge. Yeah, with the right judge. And to and it 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 uh, will give us an opportunity obviously to speak our truths as well and then ultimately advocate on behalf of our clients. So yeah, you know, the the fight the fight continues. I, you know, I, I wrote a little blog post after the recall talking about why I was disappointed by it, what I was afraid of, mm-hmm. um, afraid of in terms of its consequences, but then also feeling kind of emboldened as a public defender and motivated as a public defender. Like, no one ever said that this job was going to be easy or that the laws were going to be stacked up in our favor or in our client's favor. We get into this work because... Right we are fighting on behalf of the underdog uh, for um, we're fighting on behalf of our four values that we think our communities would benefit from that are not necessarily always prevalent and so i kind of internally like took a different perspective of the recall which was okay you know it's disappointing it sucks i feel really bad for judge persky i think he's a good judge i think actually i've met him a few times now i think he's a good person very thoughtful very intelligent but then okay you know it's it's happened now what now it's an opportunity for us as public defenders to try to be the voices of reason to really humanize our clients and to demand more of our system and so in that sense i i'm hopeful and i think it's kind of more it's another chance for us to battle it's time to roll up our sleeves yeah yeah the fight continues